0: I'm Jill Shaw and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during Boston Public Schools' school committee meeting. Budget season continues with a budget hearing last night just prior to the school committee meeting. And then we heard additional comments made about the budget during public comment at school committee. Other topics last night included back to school in person a summary of programs and internships that will be provided for students this summer. And finally, we heard another presentation on the school committee's new goals and guardrails, and this one had metrics in it. Ross, good morning. Let's start from
1: the top. Good morning, Jill. Um, Yes, quite a meeting last night, as you noted, we had a budget hearing and then um, a number of presentations. You know, Jill, the big news from last night is is more students are returning to in-person hybrid learning. So, today, actually, we have students in grades K through eight who are in cohort B returning to in person learning two days a week. Also, parents are making choices to return either return their students five days a week or be fully remote when full in person learning resumes sometime in April. And there's a lot of money going to BPS, and they need to figure out how to spend it. It's, it's really true, Jill, that there is a historic budget in Boston this year. The total general fund budget that is being presented to the school committee for a vote next week is, is about $1.3 billion. Yeah. And there's at least you know, an additional few hundred million dollars that are going to be made available through federal recovery efforts in the coming weeks. So there's just, there's a lot of money coming to BPS.
0: And Ross, the, the money that's coming from the federal government has a cap on it in terms of time, right? It has to be spent over three years, I
1: think. That's correct, Joe. We talked about a little bit about this in previous podcasts where we've said there's 123 million additional dollars coming to BPS that needs to be spent in three years. Well, that is true. And there's another bucket of money that's coming to BPS that, that may be more than that 123 million for recovery efforts, again, sunsetting after three years. Right. So so clearly, you know, this is a time for BPS to make investments that are going to have long-term impact on students of Boston. The district hasn't really outlined what those investments are and has instead sort of indicated those, there's going to be a future engagement process about how to use the federal money wisely. And then it was, what's really important, Jill, is, is every family in BPS right now has until Monday, which is a deadline for choosing whether they're going to send their children back to school five days a week in person or stay fully remote. And parents really don't even know what school will look like with five days a week in person, but they're still required to make that decision. And it's important to note here, the State Department of Education is requiring all K-5 to students to return to in-person learning or be fully remote by April 5th. Students in grades 6 through 8 must return by April 28th, and then high school students sometime this spring. So a lot going on um, in schools across our state and in schools in Boston.
0: Right. So the state is strongly encouraging public schools to restart in-person learning, and Boston is ramping up to get all of its students back in school, which, as we know, Ross, will include finding a good number of students who haven't attended school very much or at all this year. Now, the school committee meeting started, actually, that before it started, there was discussion about the budget in the budget hearing meeting. And it took place right before school committee Started so we were listening in. City councilor and candidate for mayor Michelle
2: Wu offered these comments. Um, I have a couple points I wanted to bring up. First, on equity and equitable funding, uh, there are desperately needed investments in here. Thank you so much for for social workers, family liaisons, custodians, other essential supports. Uh, but we we do need to acknowledge that the majority of our schools seem to be targeted for funding reductions, reducing the base student allotment and shifting toward funding more staff positions centrally. So um, just would really love to be intentional about how this impacts the ability of school leaders to plan for their communities over the long term and and how much fundraising is expected to to fit into that and and equity issues um, on that front as well. Secondly, in terms of Uh, transparency and planning and communication it's been difficult um, as as a someone involved in the system but also just as a a parent um, to to face so much uncertainty and I I think this budget um, you know it would be great to see more clarity about what families and educators can expect next year are we still planning for distancing and Um, the spacing. Are we bringing in other services with community centers, libraries, municipal buildings to um, ensure that if that is the case, then we can still return to school safely in person. Uh, Next on summer programming, um, just really so much has been lost, connection, stability, mentorship. Uh, We must ensure that the budget provides wraparound services to students to ease this transition back to to full in-person learning beyond just a narrow concern about learning loss. And so um, hoping to partner on summer programming that includes sports, arts, music, the full range of uh, making our students feel whole again and and, um, seen and heard and valued. Um, In terms of community hub schools, we we heard an update on the hub school pilot, $1.1 million investment in 12 new hub school managers Deepening collaboration uh, with the YMCA and other partners, uh, which appears to be funded from federal sources. So, would love to hear about um, what happens when those funding sources run out in a few years, and and what the timeline is for every school to become a full service community hub school. Um, and then, uh, finally, just you know, the pandemic has has I, I don't need to tell this crowd the pandemic has deepened the inequities and challenges that were around long before COVID-19. And I just wanna emphasize the the need and the urgency of making policy decisions collaboratively and having transparency in in bringing in families, educators and and the full school communities. And so eager to partner um, and thank you so much. This is the moment to demand bold, urgent change and make sure that our students and young people are are truly an entire community mission. Thank you so much. Now, Roz, What I heard Councilperson Wu
0: saying is that it appears we're moving away from school-based funding, and I need you to help us understand more what is going to happen next year. What's in your mind when you think about this budget? What's school going to look like? Do you think that we're going to need spaces other than BPS buildings if we are envisioning all kids back in school next year? How are we going to be safe? Then she flipped to summer and she talked about how are we going to regain momentum that has been lost uh, and asked that school committee had not acknowledged that all of our families and students have lost some sort of progress in some way this year. She wants to make sure that they are offering enough in terms of wraparound services to help all students. Um, She also reinforces what CFO, Nate Cooter mentioned at the last school committee meeting, that there's been a cliff or there will be a cliff created by the allocation of federal funding. And so she's asking, you know, after those three years, what is the plan? What are we going to do when this money runs out? And finally, she asks for what everyone's been asking for of school committee lately, collaboration and transparency. And she offers her partnership in doing this. Then Ross, the superintendent, which was a little out of the norm, felt compelled to respond and she said
3: this, Madam Chair, I just want to make a correction. I don't normally interrupt, but I don't want the public to think that the positions are central. So those social work positions and family liaison positions are all school-based positions. But,
0: Russ, I don't think that is what Councilperson Wu was asking. I think she is concerned about a move away from schools informing the budget. We saw this in the last meeting when CFO... Nate Cooter talked about the superintendent's bold move away from weighted student funding. We hear more about this from the superintendent in terms of how schools will be informing the budget a little bit later in, in the meeting. So we'll get to that.
1: Yeah. So, so Jill, that, that was quite fascinating. And I thought it was a great summary uh, from Councilwoman Wu about what the expectation is around the budget. And I think your summary was, was excellent about you know, some, some of the unanswered questions in this budget. So, you know, despite all the funds coming into the district, we heard from a number of parents during public comment from different schools that their budgets are actually being cut. So Ms. Robinson probes for an answer to how this could be.
3: Given that we know that there will be additional changes in additional funding and schools did approve the budgets that they had to date, is there another opportunity for schools to come back together again? Given that we know additional funds will be coming to look at where they are school-wise and within the guidelines of new funds, will there be funds set aside so that schools can request funding towards items that continue to be unique to their individual school versus across the whole district.
1: And then the, the superintendent responds that schools don't have a voice now to fill their budget gaps. But they may in the
3: future absolutely not with this particular general fund pot of funding but with the with the additional revenues that will be coming schools will have a voice in that funding okay so at what point would that so that would not be coming with the the cares money yes with the cares funding with the well we have two we have the Funding now the 123 million that needs to be allocated out a lot of that will go to returning strong and and a lot of health and safety pieces and there may be some school funding that will go, um, but then the additional money that um, committee Member O'Neill was speaking to will come later. Um, We're not sure just. Uh, came to the state, and so they have to do allocation. Then we have to do some of our um, community engagement work around that funding, and then meet with school leaders about that funding and get that funding distributed out. Um, and then that will be aligned to their um, their budgets that they they're needing for the next upcoming year, and then the following two years. As Chair O'Neill, I mean, Vice Chair O'Neill spoke to.
1: So what we heard is that there's a lot of money coming into the district. Some schools feel like their budgets are being cut. BPS is not currently um, going to use funding to fill in those cuts. And there's more money coming to the district and schools that may be able to, you know, schools may be able to weigh in on and, and determine how to use it. It seems like there should be much more clarity on the strategy for how to use this historic funding. So the meeting then, Jill, it moved on to the superintendent report. So the budget hearing closed, and we began with the superintendent report, where we heard about the plans to return students to in-person learning. As we just noted, as of April 5th, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education has said they will not recognize hybrid learning any longer for students in grades K through five, and that all families must choose either five days a week of in-person learning or be remote for five days a week. A survey was sent out to families, as we noted, on Monday to make this decision. As of now, approximately 32% or 16,000 families have completed the survey and roughly 65% of them are choosing in-person learning. It should be noted that the preferences are close to the current model that families have chosen, either hybrid or remote. So if families are remote now, most of them are choosing to stay remote. If they're hybrid, most of them are choosing to go back in person. And then the superintendent was asked about obstacles remaining to get students in five days a week in person. And she outlined a number of these obstacles.
3: Yeah, so first on the three feet, um, that was a big obstacle, right? Um, You know, I think that, you know, we've really been trying to, over the past years, be about six feet from everybody. um, And that's pretty socialized within our parents and our community thinking that's the safe distance. But one thing we also know is that the science has evolved as we've learned more. And so I think that's been harder for people to adjust because we get socialized to one way and then the science shifts and then you go, oh no, you know that can't be true. But it is true because there's more evidence and more science behind those recommendations. And so what, what the state has recommended and has always been, um, the state has always been at three feet and it's six feet if you can, but three feet was permissible. And I do think that the CDC is now going to lessen their guidance. We did get something from the Council of Great City Schools this afternoon. I haven't had an opportunity to review it, Um, but we will need to be at three feet to fit everybody in. As I said, we have a number of schools where we have nearly 90% so far saying they wanna be in school. And so um, that means that we will be um, having students' desks, three feet. Um, We do have a number of Um, recommendations about lunch though, be having to be at six feet so that's causing some challenge because if you have seats at three feet but then when you take off your masks and you're eating food you have to be at six feet then you have to be thinking through well what does your lunch schedule look like and and uh, what does that mean in terms of serving and, and eating lunch and the time that it's going to take to do that for everybody so that's a that's something we're still working through and then the next thing is just the capacity issue at our schools um, which is also an issue, you know, many of our schools have a lot of furniture, you know, they're old schools, they have a lot of built in bookcases, a lot of bookcases, people have brought in um, sand tables, toys, um, school libraries inside the classrooms, you know, classroom libraries and, and different um, tools that teachers have been using um, when you didn't have to be this far away from one another. So the removal of all of that furniture is also Um, a challenge for us and so we're trying to so that we have room so those are the biggest pieces I think we'll be able to route our students and the transportation team has been pretty um, nimble about that but it is also still routing our our parents making sure that we have our special education routes we route also private parochial and charter schools so they return we have to calculate for that um, service to them so you know transportation capacity and the, then the health and safety of, of, our, of our students and staff um, when, when they're not eating, I mean, when they're eating and um, and the and the social distancing. I'd, I'd say those are the biggest pieces.
1: Curiously, Jill, there is no further probing from members about the obstacles or further questioning about the timeline to overcome these obstacles or how information will be shared with families. A few questions remain about how in-person or remote learning will happen it's not clear if synchronous teaching will happen by class, if in-person students will have one teacher and then remote students will have a different teacher. Will this be a school-based decision or a district decision? It's also really unclear about how students in the upper grades will switch classrooms. Currently, students in some schools, students in grades six through eight, are sitting all day in their home room, logging into Zoom um, when they're in in in-person learning. So all of these details are important for families to, you know, to know before locking in a decision. Also, when Dr. Rivera asked a really good question about how surveillance testing is going, this is the coronavirus testing for students and staff going on schools, BPS could not answer the basic questions about how much testing was happening, what the positivity rates are in schools. Also, this is really important information for parents to consider before making a final decision for Monday.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As you're saying, the district is asking for commitments without providing all of the information that parents and families need in order to make those decisions. School committee moved along then to public comment where we heard from parents expressing their concern about returning to in-person learning as well as advocacy to return students to in-person learning five days a week. There's folks who still are very much on the fence and folks who want to jump kind of feet first into back to school. Here's a quote from a parent advocating for returning to in-person learning and the need to make it work.
4: Good evening. Uh, My name is uh, Manuka Katompenakis. I have two amazing children at BPS, and we live in Charlestown. Tomorrow, my daughter will be walking into a classroom for the first time in over a year, and she is thrilled. She's so excited that I doubt she will be getting much sleep tonight. It has been a difficult year, a challenging year for all, And she has been asking a lot of questions like, why do her girlfriends in the neighborhood are going to school and she isn't? Why do her opponents in hockey from the surrounding towns are going to school and she she isn't? Why do her cousins and friends in Europe are going to school and she isn't? She got a haircut a week ago at a hair salon across the street from what looked like an abandoned building, her school. I was terrified of the obvious question that was in her mind that afternoon, not because I cannot answer. I don't want to answer. I don't want to talk to her about a mayor that was a possible appointee to lead the United States Labor Department and obviously wouldn't go against the major union. That union's leadership that decided to capitalize on that weakness and in the process, confused wants with needs and priorities a city council that according to many of its members had no say in this, school and public health committee members appointed by the mayor and as a result, powerless at best. I don't want to tell her all that because I still believe in public education and I want her to believe in it too.
5: 30 seconds.
4: Mayor Walz, Councilwoman Janey, Ms. Tang, Madam Chair and board members, enough. Let's put it all behind us and try to solve what is left. Dr. Caselius. A lot of amazing things were accomplished, no argument. But it's been a year. No more excuses, no waivers, no more confusing surveys. Our kids belong in a classroom five days a week. Make it work. I know I'm out of time, so I'll close with this. Miss H and Miss K, my daughter's incredible teachers, made it work. Thousands of households across our great city made it work. It's been over a year. Make it work.
1: I still believe in public education, too. This parent outlines the political structure that incentivizes a sort of go-along-to-get-along strategy. The parent notes clearly that what we've been experiencing with this school committee over the last year or longer, Mm -hmm. members have been socialized to not rock the boat, to not push when they get a non-answer from BPS. Is it because they fear they're going to be removed from the committee? With an increased call for an elected school committee with accountability, I wonder if members will now probe harder, will ask harder questions, will demand answers, and will ultimately be more bold.
0: Yes, Ross, that's a very good question. So then we heard from another parent who was also advocating for in-person learning.
5: Good evening. My name is Lindsay Pachano of South Boston, Perry School, Site Council, Voices for BPS Families, and a mom of three children in grade three, grade one, and K-1, one of whom has ADHD. I am also one of the 865,000 women in the U.S. who was forced to leave the labor force in 2020 to be a full-time caregiver, more than four times that of men. Today, March 17th, would have marked my 19-year anniversary at my dream job, but instead of celebrating this accomplishment at the dinner table with my family, I'm pleading for you to put Boston families and children before politics. Everything from the Btu bargaining agreement has been met. From school days reduced to 170 hbc and air quality testing to allowing btu members to bring their children to work with them the btu has had every demand met and even more with their well-deserved vaccine clinic that wasn't even in their agreement they have won so we can't understand why they post fear-mongering on social media saying it's not safe to return full-time phase three to return in the fall was delayed by 136 days due to rates above four percent Children weren't inside a classroom for 353 days. However, teachers continued to do an exceptional job through a computer screen day in and day out. The hybrid return to school on March 1st exceeded expectations on so many levels. The children are so hungry to learn and socialize. However, it has made the remote days that much more challenging now that they've had a taste of the real deal. Our resilient children have now become disengaged and frustrated and are brought to tears on a daily basis. Teachers cannot continue this hybrid model either. Boston rates are below the agreed upon 4% threshold and the CDC is changing its guidelines to three feet apart. Our children have been watching their private school neighbors attend in-person local Catholic schools five days a week for seven months. Where is the equity? What message are we teaching our children? You have had over a year to figure out your plan for transportation. You still have 19 days to remove furniture. We are on our hands and knees pleading with you to follow the science and your conscience and not the politics. Please, please, please do what you know it's right by giving our kids their civil right of a full-time in-person education starting April 5th. School is essential. Thank you for your time and everything you've been doing.
1: Wow, what, what another you know really powerful statement talking about the effects of this year on her family. Yeah. And we heard from the chair of the special education parent committee, reacting to the school committee's goals for students with disabilities. She was advocating for more comprehensive goals for students with disabilities to ensure that they're in appropriate placements and least restrictive environments and that students with disabilities are making progress towards their IEPs, their individual education plans. And we also, Jill, we heard of this issue of the Horace Mann School, and this is like, we hear this yeah. week, in, week in and week out, yeah. where the, the representatives of the Horace Mann School for the deaf are saying, hey, we would like a building. You know, they, right. they, they literally have no swing space for their school. They don't know where their students will be next year. This is one of the oldest schools in our state for or in the country for the deaf and hard of hearing, and they don't have a home, um, and they also don't have a a principal. Their principal resigned, and and there is no leader in the school. So I hope this issue is addressed sooner than later. And lastly, Jill, we heard from a couple of students, including a former uh, student representative on the school committee, Mr. James, expressing their discontent with the committee and the lack of student input and voice in decision making. After the public comment, we moved on to the first of two reports, which was covering the plan for summer school. First and foremost, this is big news um, there's going to be in person learning opportunities for up to 25,000 students this summer.
6: We're thrilled to share that this year we will have the ability to convene in person for summer programming. Families can plan to have summer learning opportunities beginning on July 6th through August 6th with some of our programs beginning July 12th and running through August 20th. You can plan on hearing from us to ask you specifically what program you're interested in registering for beginning in April when our Summer Stuff website will go live.
1: Dr. Coleman uh, probed a bit more to find out if there are enough seats for every student who truly needs one.
7: So I apologize for asking, you know, moving towards a, um, what could be seen as as a negative request and that what I would, I love to see all the work that's being done, but I also would like to get a sense of who we're not meeting, right? What's the the real need? What percent of our kids have needs that could be in the program and are not, and want to have a sense of that delta? I don't want to take away from the great successes, but what we're going, I know it's very hard, but if we have a sense of the delta between what we're doing and what the need is, and then as we think forward over the, the next uh, several summers, how we can reduce that size. And so it's, it's just kind of using data to see what we're doing well and not doing well.
1: And the superintendent respond.
7: That's a good,
3: a good reminder, Dr. Coleman, of the planning that needs to go in place to ensure that we have great equity across our schools and great opportunity for every student that needs it. We are striving to meet the need of every student that needs summer learning. That's our that's our goal is to make enough slots available to match the demand um, out there for families that need to have this kind of care and um, students who need to have this academic boost. We think this is one of the most important summers ever to offer summer learning for our kiddos.
1: And Dr. Coleman tried once more uh, to get his question answered. To
7: know a Right. And because we believe you and we know you're working very hard to do that, we also need to be clear about what more resources we may need so you can help fill that gap. So knowing that gap will help us identify resources to meet them.
1: Joe, this is a good example of a clear question and a non-answer from BPS. If you are listening closely to school committee meetings, you will find that every meeting is full of these exchanges with probing questions from some members of the committee and non-answers from DPS and a complete lack of follow-up from members to get the answer to the question that they're asking.
0: Right.
1: Lastly, Jill, Chairman Oliver Davila asked asked about the strategy for ensuring that all students have a summer plan and whether the district will be targeting students. Ms. Zayas responded about the plan to ensure every student
6: as a plan two things one is you talked about all students having a plan so i'm hoping, like all students in our district have a plan and that each you know school each school leader has. Um, been in touch with families and that they know what that student needs and every family knows what options are out there so that's one question and then my other question is, um, is it self selecting or are we looking at. And maybe it goes back to Dr. Coleman's earlier point, are we, are we targeting some students who we've seen who like aren't attending as much or just have kind of fallen off the fray so I'm just wondering how that works. Thank you for those great questions, um, Madam Chair. Um, the first question about all students having a plan. Our Hope and goal and what we're working on constructing right now is a registration system that'll connect to our panorama um, system for student success that'll allow us to track an actual plan for every single student. So we're working through the details of how those systems will talk to each other, um, what the deadline will be for for our school-based communities to be in touch with their families, and how the district office and volunteer teams will support them in doing that outreach so that we do have a documented plan for every single child. Um, And that may very well be that, you know, my child will be on, um, you know, on on grandma's summer camp, right, Um, and reading their summer learning, their summer book, um, and not participating in a structured program, but we'll have that um, recorded in Panorama, so that we'll know, um, uh, so that we can, so that we can know that there was a, 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 a concerted effort and an intentional um, conversation that happened with that family about what they need, um, and that we've met that need, um, however possible.
1: Another really good question by a school community member, and an incomplete answer: Will schools target students who need supports? Do they have a coordinated plan to get these students the right supports? And the answer from BPS is we're working on integrating systems and no follow up from members. Jill, it would really be satisfying to me to if the committee actually stayed on one topic at a meeting and had members keep on asking questions until they get an answer. These meetings are full of empty, these empty exchanges.
0: Right, and it really feels like Panorama, which is a software tool, is being set up to be the scapegoat for anything that goes wrong. We've heard heard about Panorama in the last meeting. We also heard that a majority of the schools are not yet using this new system to collect data on students. And now it seems central to the strategy for tracking students and onboarding them into summer programs. It, It just, something's not right there.
1: Yes, and and, and school committee members should not not stop asking their very good questions um, yeah. until they get an answer for what they're looking for. By by not pushing, they're failing to move the system forward in the direction that they desire.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a really good point. And they are asking great questions. So they deserve great answers. So lastly, school committee entertained a second presentation about its new goals and guardrails. These the set of measures is what they'll use to judge their progress as a committee. So last night, for the first time, they presented actual data instead of using from X to Y. Ross, what did you think? The metrics didn't feel very toothy to me, nor did they appear to be very bold. In fact, there was one metric that was introduced that school committee members took issue with because it isn't actually something that can be measured. It's not a pervasive program in the district. They're tying one of the graduation metrics to MassCore.
1: Yes, Jill, one of the measures for having our high school students being prepared for life after high school is um, completing the MassCore requirements. MassCore, as you, as you recall, we've spent a lot of time on this issue, which is a common requirement for all of our high school students, common coursework for all of our high school students. and. Um, MassCore hasn't been adopted by the school system. In fact, we had a presentation on MassCore to the school committee that was never followed up on. There was no vote to implement MassCore and it was just tabled. So here, we, you know, the, the sort of the school committee is coming back and saying, we want them a metric, a very important metric for high school students to be MassCore without actually have adopting MassCore as their policy for graduation. So Jill, let me just take a moment to summarize some thoughts around the school committee metrics for success and how they define success. You know, first and foremost, I would just sort of summarize the, their five goals and their metrics as, as having really low expectations. You know, essentially if, if we could start with English language learners. So there's a target for our English language learners to have growth on the access assessment, right? and. Growth, typically, Jill, the way we measure growth is we give an assessment two years in a row. And a student who makes 50% growth is essentially making one year's worth of growth on the assessment. Mm-hmm. Anything above 50%, they're making more than one year growth. And then anything below 50% is less than one year's growth. What our school system is saying is that our, our students are currently, our English language learners, are currently at 33.8% growth It's access assessment. And they hope by 2025, that our English language learners will achieve 42.8% growth. So what this means, Jill, is that we're expecting 42 point, that we're expecting that our English language learners will make less than a year's worth of growth on average by 2025. In fact, we're expecting them to make, you know, about 8% less than a year's worth of growth on the access assessment. That's kind of troubling and it seems to be low expectations. On the students with disabilities goal, essentially this is about 50%, again, another growth percentile on MCAS, ELA, English Language Arts, MCAS. And so basically what the district is saying is that we want students with disabilities to be making about a year's worth of growth, a little more than a year's worth of growth on the MCAS. This this goal, again, is very much incomplete. You know, our students with disabilities range from so many different types of, of needs and disabilities in our school system what we should be saying is that our students with disabilities will meet all the goals on their IEPs that are outlined for them, which are very clear goals for each student, in the least restrictive environment possible, right? So we should be talking about ensuring that our students with disabilities have access to the least restrictive environment, which is a federal law, and that they're meeting the goals on their IEPs. This sort of made-up goal around 50% growth or 56% growth by 2025 for ELA students with disabilities is really a narrow goal that doesn't represent the interests of our students with disabilities. And then Jill, I just wanna move on to, there's, there's three goals for eighth grade. And essentially these are raw scores for students on MCAS. So they, in eighth grade, the district is sort of saying, we want our students on ELA, on math and science MCAS to meet this raw score on average, right? And these raw scores the district has set forward are basically, currently, the majority of our students are not meeting standards on the MCAS, which is the lowest you can be on MCAS, in ELA, math and science. And our district is saying by 2025, we want our students to be partially meeting expectations on the MCAS. They're basically saying they want the average raw score, the average students in BPS, to move to partially meeting expectations. Let me just be really clear about this. Thing. Our school committee is saying by 2025, they want our eighth grade students on ELA, math, and science to partially meet the, ex- the state standard. Right. Not meet it. Right. They want to just partially meet it. And then Jill, it gets worse. At high school, the district has outlined that they want students to graduate ready for college career and life and to have the power to find goals we're seeking as the world changes around them and they've set forward they basically said look we want students to meet two of these three things let me just outline them for you they want students to either have attendance over 94 percent which currently 52 percent of our students have attendance at high school over 94 percent mm. They want a GPA of 2.7 or higher, which 56% of our students have. Or they want students to have access to have taken mass core or advanced work, I'm sorry, or um advanced coursework, which 31% of our students have taken. And you can't really blame our students for this because 31%, you know, we don't have mass core in our schools. So essentially what the district, the schools committee is saying is we want two of the three, two of these three things, our, our high school graduates to achieve two of these three things. Okay. Currently, 44.9% of our students in our districts achieved two of those three things. And the big goal here for the school committee is that by 2025, 55% of our students will have either attendance, combination of attendance, GPA, and mass score. 55% of our students. So basically, our district is saying 45% of our students just won't be ready for college, career, and life ready. I, I, I want to be super clear about this. Our school committee is setting forth a strategic mission for our school district, saying that their expectation is that 45% of our students in 2025 will not be ready for college, career, and life. What messages are we sending to our community, Joe?
5: by laying out measures like
0: this. Right. Now there's two things that strike me as you summarize their goals, the metrics for their goals. One is that they're advocating for some sort of chip away at the status quo strategy, not rather than, hey, acknowledging things are bad and we are going to have to do some aggressive and significant things if we really want kids to be successful in this system. And the other thing that strikes me Ross is that there's so much research that says that kids work towards the expectations that adults set for them. And you have a set of adults here who are in charge of rearing the ship and their expectations for the students are incredibly low. And so, how like, why would we think that students would ever rise above them? It's just, it's a very weird pace.
1: I mean, there are so many things to talk about here, Jill, that we won't get into. I mean, there's no mention of opportunity gaps here. There's right. no disaggregation of the data around race, around income in our, in our city, showing the gaps in our city and addressing those equity gaps. Nothing, not a mention, not a mention about it. And... But 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 he and incredibly important here is the expectations that the school committee is setting. I mean, they are literally setting expectations that our students will not be meeting state standards and our students will not be prepared for college and life success. That is what they are communicating. That's what they communicated last night, and it is incredibly troubling.
0: You know, several shows back, we read the MCAS results of the majority of schools, I think, who are all performing below uh, standards on the MCAS. And we did it to make the point that while we're spending an awful lot of time making decisions about how an entrance happens to an exam school, we are completely missing the bigger game here, which is the underperformance of the majority of our schools in the district. And this set of goals is targeting all of the schools in our district with a set of metrics that says, we're going to be okay if over the next five years you eke up above 50%. That just feels like our expectation is that we continue to fail our students. That that to me is very troubling.
1: And to the top. When we have historical historical funding coming into the system. Yeah. We could invest in so many resources. Right. Right. And set our expectations high. Right. For ourselves and our students. Right. And yet yet we have no plan yet for how we're going to spend those resources. And we've set incredibly mediocre to low goals for the students in our state. Right.
0: Right. So we are left with the following questions. Many questions, but here are some of the questions that we are reflecting on after this meeting. Do teachers have what they need to teach simultaneously as more students go back to school in person each week? And while some families choose to stay remote until the end of the year.
1: What will five days a week of in-person or fully remote learning look like across all grades? Will students have different teachers? Will students be able to switch classes in uh, in person at the upper grade levels? What happens if a family wants to switch from in-person to remote learning or vice versa? How will the obstacles the superintendent outlines be resolved? Will the district apply for a waiver from the state?
0: What is the strategy for using the influx of federal funds for long-term investments in
1: Boston public schools? With the school choice season coming to a close, when will families find out their assignments? And what are the enrollment numbers for next year?
0: What are the strategies to deal with students' attendance? How will the Boston public school system address their learning and social emotional needs?
1: How will summer programs be advertised to families? How will they ensure that every student has a plan? And how will they track this?
0: How will BPS ensure safety in their programs this summer? Will they include COVID-19 testing? What are the other expected safety protocols?
1: So how do we engage? How do we help? Here are some ideas. The Boston City Council approves the school department's budget. It's the biggest part of the city of the city's budget. Make sure that they know what you think about the budget and where your questions are or, or where you'd like to see changes. Advocate for a clear strategy on how the influx recovery money will be spent for long-term positive change in EPS. Also, Email school committee members, encourage them to ask the questions and find the answers for what families will wanna know about returning to in-person learning. And lastly, attend an exam school task force uh, uh, committee meeting. These happen every Tuesday at 5 p.m. and the link is on the Boston Public Schools website.
0: Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great
7: day.